production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon. Welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. It's Friday, November 17th, and I'm Congresswoman Marcy Kaptur, representing the 9th District of Ohio. It is my... It is my distinct honor to be here to introduce Her Excellency Oksana Markarova, Ambassador Extraordinary and Plenipotentiary of Ukraine to the United States. We are delighted to also have my trusted friend, Ohio's former Senator, Rob Portman, with us today. I've just come from Washington, D.C., where I joined a majority of my colleagues from both parties in approving a continuing resolution to keep our government funded. So while there's no imminent government shutdown, the measure we approved did not include any additional aid to the people of Ukraine to support them in their war against Putin's Russia in spite of persistent advocacy from all of us in the Congressional House Ukraine Caucus, 95 strong. Uh, the caucus is bipartisan. I want you to hear that word, bipartisan, it can still happen, who have worked. <laughs> to build stronger ties to Ukraine and to support the strengthening of democracy in that nation. Senator Portman started the one on the Senate side. Thank you, Rob. Thank you so much. Many of us remain steadfast in our commitment to seeing the Ukrainian people supported in their battle to preserve their nation and their democracy. But we have a lot of work to do, a lot of education to do, to bring more of our colleagues along. That's why events like this one and the work of the ambassador are so important. Ambassador Markarova was appointed by Ukraine President Vladimir Zelensky in 2021, less than a year before Russia, Russia's unprovoked invasion of Ukraine's sovereign territory. Prior to taking this diplomatic post, she served in Ukraine's Ministry of Finance, where she headed the country's economic recovery program, oversaw fiscal, consolidation, and coordinated international monetary fund programs. Ambassador Markarova also has an acclaimed career in the private sector, where she spent 17 years in leadership roles at financial institutions, including the Western NIS Enterprise Fund. I was proud to host Ambassador Markarova this summer at the Lima, Ohio tank plant, whose M1A1 Abrams tanks have since been delivered to Ukraine from right here in the heart of Northern Ohio. Now, I hardly need to introduce Rob Portman. I think you all know him, and his steady, wise presence is missed in the Senate. He served as a United States Senator from Ohio from 2011 to 2023, and when Rob came to the City Club shortly after the war began, he talked about what he'd seen firsthand in Ukraine. Moderating the conversation today is Dan Molthrop, 
CEO of the city of this gorgeous City Club of Cleveland. Dan has been leading the City Club since 2013, and judging by this lovely new space, you're doing a great job, Dan. Right now, if you have a question for the ambassador, you can text it to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. And City Club staff will try to work it into the second half of the program. Members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming Ambassador Oksana Markarova and Senator Rob Porton. Congresswoman, thank you so much for that introduction, um, and thank you for your service uh, for, to the people of Ohio. There are so many elected officials and appointed officials and, and others in the, in the room today. I want to just take a moment to thank all of you for your service and for being here today to hear from the Ambassador and Senator Portman. Um, Ambassador, I want to just start by also thanking you for coming to Ohio, uh, for really blessing us with your presence here. Um, things are so difficult in Ukraine right now. It is hard to know what the status is, how things are going, if there's progress. Can you tell us? Give us an update. Thank you, first of all, for having me here. It's such an honor to be uh, here at the City Club and with uh, our excellent Senator Portman, with Congresswoman Kaptur, with so many I see familiar faces in the audience, uh, all the Ukrainians, you know, by by birth, by, by blood, or by choice. Uh, and just want to thank you for all your support first, because we are where we are now, we would not be able to do that and to defend ourselves without the support of all Americans, and it has been essential. Now, when we were boarding the plane in Washington, D.C. today, I was so happy to see the announcements from our Marines that crossed the Dnipro again today and actually conducted very brave operations on the left bank of Dnipro. So for those who follow, you know, this is a big breakthrough. And not only they are crossing the Dnipro, they are doing constantly these operations, preparing the battlefield for the new liberations. It has been almost two years of this full-fledged war. And the war started in 2014, and we always have to keep it in mind that actually it's almost 10 years of war. But of course, this full-fledged war, let's remind ourselves uh, what we were able to do since Russia attacked us, even though they are, more, they are more, so much bigger. We liberated more than 50% of the land they actually were able to occupy since uh, February 22. We were able to liberate Kherson. We were able to liberate Kiev Oblast and Kharkiv Oblast. Uh, but after we started the summer campaign, which some call summer uh, counteroffensive, and you know we're in, in deep uh, August now, uh, deep, deep uh, autumn now, <clears throat> it has been very difficult. It's a 800-kilometer line, 800, ki 800 miles, actually, line, which is uh, much longer than from Washington, D.C. to Chicago, and it's a constant uh, artillery battle. So it's not a stalemate, as some uh, would call it. It's not uh, a quiet place. It's, it's a very hot World War I slash World War II type of war uh, over a very long period of time. And even though, you know, of course we would like to liberate country much faster because we know what happens on the, on the occupied territories. We know that people have been killed and tortured and raped and kids have been kidnapped into Russia as we speak now on a daily basis. 
But since the start of this difficult summer campaign, we never lost an inch. It was a very deliberate move forward. We are moving forward. And if we can all stay the course, Ukrainians can stay the course. We will fight until we win. We will fight regardless of whether you know the weapons is enough or not enough. But if we all can stay the force, the course, if our friends and allies will double down now and provide us with more weapons, we can win this. We can liberate more. And, um, so, so one, it's a very difficult situation on the battlefield, but we keep fighting and we, we do not intend to stop during the winter. Second, there is a constant attacks on all the cities, again, thanks to the US, thanks to Patriots, which are outperforming uh, you know, any, any other air defense in Ukraine. There are safe islands or safer islands, I should say, in Ukraine. But of course, we are bracing for a large, large barrage of everything and Shahid, this Iranian, uh, made now Russia-produced drones uh, as soon as the temperatures will be constantly in, in uh, sub-zero range. Uh, and, you know, again, we don't have any other alternative. We have to win it for the sake of Ukraine, but we also have to win it for the sake of all of us, for the sake of anyone who thinks that democracy has to win. Thank you, Ambassador. Senator Portman, I want to ask you to talk a little bit about why this is so important to you. I know this is a, a very important policy priority, and when as, imagining your life as a senator, one can imagine why that was so um, at the time. You're uh, no longer, a, strictly speaking, a, a, a public official. You're retired. Why is this still so important to you? It's nice to be retired. Uh, <laughs> well, first of all, Thank you for holding this, Dan, um, this, this session. And the City Club has been a tremendous um, voice for Ukraine. I've been here two or three times talking about Ukraine. And I really want to thank the ambassador for joining us. Everybody in the country wants her to come to their equivalent, uh, not that there's any equivalent to the City Club, but to, <laughs> to, to their equivalent uh, uh, speaking bureau. And uh, she chose to come here. And I think one reason is she understands uh, the people in this audience today and, and this part of Ohio uh, has a very rich legacy and connection to Ukraine and has been extremely helpful. I mean, it is amazing the amount of humanitarian assistance that has come just from Northeast Ohio. Uh, it's the police department in Cleveland that's providing helmets and uh, protective gear. Um, it is Medwish, of course. For those who don't know about Medwish, oh my gosh, we're so lucky to have them in Ohio and, and here in Cleveland. But they have provided uh, tons of uh, equipment, hospital equipment, uh, and other medical needs uh, to Ukraine. I mean, it is amazing um, what Marta and Andy have done with their respective organizations. Uh, Marta representing the uh, United Organizations of uh, Ukrainian uh, organizations here in Ohio. But they have, for years, been providing help for Ukraine, but of course stepped it up uh, after 2014. And then Andy Futes, uh, the president of the American Congress, uh, the Ukrainian Congress of uh, Committee of America, and uh, they have provided help. And I'm missing so many other people in this room who have been helpful. Uh, Marcy and others have been helpful in being sure that we use the Port of Cleveland, which is an exceptional resource that we always are trying to use more. This is a great way to use it. And uh, literally ambulances have gone on ships there and then been sent through the Great Lakes to 
to Ukraine. So um, we thank you for coming. And we know that you know how much support there is in this community. And it's, um, to answer your question more specifically about me, it's, it's a matter of the heart and the passion. In 2014, I was asked to go to Ukraine to be an election observer. This was during the election of President Poroshenko. And you may recall, uh, this was after the Maidan and uh, just a, a, a very uh, difficult time for Ukraine. And uh, 100 martyrs were killed, actually more than 100, but uh, the 100 martyrs were killed by snipers. Uh, these were peaceful protests. And uh, so the Russian-backed, terribly corrupt government was kicked out, brought in a new government, but they needed to have election observers there to make sure it was done properly. President Poroshenko won by more than 50% of the vote. It was easy, in a way, to be an election observer. But what I found <laughs> was a country that had made a decision. And the decision was not just to kick out a government that was corrupt. It was a decision to be like us. It was a decision by Ukraine to choose freedom and democracy and free markets and a European-American future for themselves and their children and grandchildren. And it was a very deliberate and very brave decision. And the blood of those martyrs and others uh, were there to show for it. And they knew it was risky with Russia, but they were turning to us. And to me, that combined with a lot of friends here in Northeast Ohio, who I'd gotten to know and elsewhere in Ohio, uh, made this an issue of, of the heart and passion. And it is, as Ambassador said a moment ago, about the fight for freedom. It's not just about Ukraine. This is the endless fight for freedom. And the founders of our country talked about this. This is not going to be easy, right? Uh, it's a constant fight. And today that fight is being fought in various places around the world. As we see, it's a dangerous and volatile time. But no place uh, more distinctly about freedom than in Ukraine. Russia's totally unprovoked, totally illegal, and totally brutal attack on Ukraine had to be responded to. Otherwise, every other country around the world, our adversaries, our friends, uh, would see that not just the United States, but the freedom-loving countries over the world were not going to stand up when another country was so brutally attacked. So there are over 50 countries who have stood up. It's not just us, but it does include the European Union, it does include Japan, it does include Australia, it does include the great democracies around the world who say, we have to stop this here. <laughs> and by the way, the consequences of not doing it, which I'll talk about more later if we get a chance, are terrible for the United States. Not just in terms of how China or North Korea or Iran or Hamas or others look at this, that no one's going to stand up, but it would result, should we back off, and other countries backing off as well, because we have been the leaders on the military side, and I'm proud of that. We should be doing more, which we can talk about later. And if we did do more, we would break through. But this is a consequence that must be considered, which is that Putin will occupy Ukraine. And all the negative consequences in terms of the, the message to the rest of the world happens. But then you have four additional countries that are NATO allies, where we have an Article 5 obligation to protect them, a mutual defense treaty that will be on the border with Russia. In all four of those cases, think of Poland. Russia has said, you're next. And people say, well, you can't believe President Putin when he says that. I mean, you probably ought to take the guy at his word, given the fact that no one thought he would invade Ukraine. That made no sense. But he rattled the saber and did it. 
What would this mean? This would mean that the United States would be obligated to put a lot more troops and a lot more equipment all along that new border. And the, the cost of that to create Fortress Europe again, for those of you old enough to remember Fortress Europe and the great treasure and blood that America shed in World War I, World War II, we don't want to go there. So that's a consequence that some of my colleagues on my side of the aisle haven't considered, I believe, which is the tremendous cost that would be incurred should this happen. The Baltic countries, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, the countries all along that border, Slovakia, Romania, all these are our allies, you know, countries that we have an obligation to, to protect. So we need to stop it now. We need to free Ukraine from this terrible invasion and establish the fact that not just America, but the feeder of countries over the world are willing to stand up and be counted. Thank you, Senator. Thank you. Um, when we, the Senator was talking about you know, the importance for democracy and, and democracy and nations devoted to democracy standing together in support of Ukraine. Um, Ukraine has had longstanding ambitions to join NATO. Um, to, um, to be recognized as a, a part of that uh, really important treaty. What is, the what is the status of that? I mean, it, it starts with this like turn towards the West in 2014 as, and, and earlier in some ways. Um, but there's a, a NATO summit uh, coming up. Can you talk a little bit about what Ukraine is hoping to see come out of that? Well, first about the democracy. So um, it's not just in 2014 when Ukraine made that choice. We, we confirmed that choice in 2014, but those who follow Ukraine, especially Ukrainians uh, in the audience, especially our wonderful diaspora, know that Ukraine always made this civilizational choice to be European and to be democratic when we had a chance. Whether it was 400 years ago in 1918, when we had our brief history of statehood or in 1991 when overwhelmingly more than 90% of Ukrainians voted to be independent and it was recognized by Russia uh, and, and by everyone or in 2004 when we had Orange Revolution and when the democratic choice was stolen from Ukrainians we went to the streets not because we loved President Yushchenko more than Yanukovych, of course we loved him more than Yanukovych, but, but because the democratic choice was stolen. And then in 2013 again, so we have been trying to be free and democratic and European and Ukrainian for as long as Ukrainians remember Ukrainians to be, whether it was Kiev and Rus or, or, or Ukraine. So for us, it's a long struggle for our independence. And in this century, finally, our generation can do it. And, and freedom is probably the biggest value for all Ukrainians, regardless of where we live, you know, what are our political aspirations, or uh, who do we like, or what we want to be. To be free is something that Ukrainians will never compromise on. Now, it's very clear that for us to be, free, democratic, European, there is only one choice. There is no buffer zones, there is no, you're either part of the civilized world or Russia or Russia's of the world will try to attack and occupy and destroy you. So that's why it's such a natural choice for us to be part of the European Union and that's why it's such a natural choice for us to want to be part of NATO. Now, Ukraine has gone a long way 
in our NATO uh, integration and aspirations to be part of the NATO family. We, uh, in 2008, as you all remember, we wanted to receive the membership action plan. Unfortunately, that's when Russia did everything possible to scare everyone, let's call it the way it is, uh, from accepting us into, even giving us membership action plan. And unfortunately, some of the, uh, our European friends, you know, namely Chancellor Merkel then, uh, we can read it in the press of her advisors, did everything possible not to allow that to happen. That was a mistake. And after 2008, Russia attacked Georgia, and then they attacked us in 2014, and then they poisoned people on the streets of uh, Great Britain, and then they shot MH17. But after 2014, it was clear to the majority of Ukrainians, overwhelming majority of Ukrainians support NATO membership. We became first uh, a partner, uh, with NATO, we have uh, completed more than 10 annual uh, plans with NATO, successfully actually completed with regard to reforms. The NATO transformation of our armed forces is actually unbelievable and it's one of the reasons why much smaller army is actually winning over what we all thought was the second largest army in the world. Because it's not the post-Soviet small army fighting a large definitely Soviet-style Russian army. We fight differently than NATO interoperability, the control and command, the trainings. You know, we already the most capable, the battle-tested armed forces, not only in Europe, but I would argue uh, on a global scale. And we received in 2020 the EOP status with NATO, which allowed us to, to develop more. Uh, we now, since last year, since Vilnius, have what is called the Ukraine-NATO uh, Council, which allows us actually in a very institutional way to develop our relations. But I think we have to all be a bit more ambitious and a bit more brave and move forward and, uh, you know, see how Ukraine can faster become a member of NATO. Now, we are realists. We understand all the difficulties. We understand that when the country is at war, you know, there are challenges with accepting country into the NATO, but I think we have to all look at this from the perspective that Ukraine has a lot to add to NATO. We do not want to be part of NATO for NATO to protect us. We want to be part of NATO because that's where we belong values-wise and because we can add a lot to NATO. So what is the path to NATO membership? Provide us with more weapons now, provide us with everything we need now and we really are counting on, on Congress to support us with the supplementary budget, with full support as soon as possible so that we can actually double down and liberate us faster and let's focus on strategic partnership, let's focus on our NATO membership, let's focus on our European Union membership, which again, surprisingly, I think for many, during almost two years of full-fledged war, Ukraine has completed very difficult internal reforms and just recently qualified, we saw this, the statement of the uh, European Commission, for the next stage, next step in our European membership. And we will do everything possible to win this war inside Ukraine for the membership, to win this war against all the inefficiencies, legacy and, you know, Soviet legacy and corruption in order not only to win on the battlefield, but also to, to build much better country for our citizens. Ambassador, you just brought up corruption, which is one of the, um, the 
sort of allegations, I guess, that when, when people raise objections to supporting, uh, to providing aid to Ukraine from the U.S., they, they, they raise objections to the, the corruption that, that has been, uh, that historically has, has happened, um, but has also been rooted out. Can you talk about a little bit about President Zelensky's uh, fight against internal corruption? Would be happy to, because I think it's one of the reasons that proves that there should be more support, not less support. So, look, Ukraine became independent in 1991. We never had, we were occupied for 400 years before that, literally, by either Russian Empire or Soviet Union. We never had our own institutions. It was always somebody foreign. So you take this uh, young country with old history, without institutions, uh, suddenly with market economy, but without rules, without your own institutions, without uh, massive education for people. And then, of course, with Russia that spent since 1991 everything in order to get us back. And of course, you know, there is the, the emergence of oligarchs and uh, who grabbed the whole sectors of the economy and specifically invested in supporting corruption uh, was there. You know, I was, I was in business in Ukraine for a long time and then I was a finance minister. Before 2013, the corruption was systemic and the fight with it, which was there because we, you know, it's, it wasn't, Ukrainians always fought against it, but the fight against it was sporadic because we never had enough uh, bright, young, honest people in the government to actually fight it on all the levels. Now, after 2014, situation changed. After Maidan and, and several governments uh, has uh, made a lot in order to, to, to decrease the space for corruption, so essentially to root out the corruption in the gas sector, which was very much Russian-Ukrainian type of corruption, in the energy sector in general, the public procurement with Prozoro was open so that all companies could participate. The transparency, the actually unprecedented, you will not find a lot of countries, even in the European Union, that has such a transparency of registers, ultimate beneficial owners, you don't have it in the US, uh, you know, the, um, the public asset declarations of all public servants, uh, the public finance data, you can see on a daily basis what Ukraine is spending the money on and what are the revenues. So all of that was done in order to root out corruption and then President Zelensky in 2019 came to power on the, uh, if you look at his program, on the anti-corruption agenda. And the de-oligarchization which he started, and I think this is the, probably also the first time in the recent Ukrainian history when the president declared that the level playing field, the uh, lack of opportunities for oligarchs, whether they are large oligarchs, Russian oligarchs, Ukrainian oligarchs, or as we call them, minigarchs, you know, the, the different people who are trying to grab the economy on the, is going, to, is going to be how we do it. Now, is everything ideal? Definitely not. You see, you know, you have people here in the audience who do business in Ukraine, you have people who work in Ukraine, but the corruption is definitely not systemic anymore, but the fight with it is systemic. We have the whole infrastructure of this new anti-corruption entities, from the investigation to prosecutors to the special anti-corruption court. We are working on judicial reform. By the way, this is one of the most uh, difficult but also uh, most important reform that is part of our European Union integration but it's something that people also demand. Uh, we are trying to deregulate and we are deregulating as we speak and we will get there. 
But we can get there faster if we will have more compliant American business, if we will have more compliant European business that will come and invest and bring the new culture and, and, and corporate governance and, and rules with them. And, and I just want to add with, you know, during the war, um, all Ukrainians have a very uh, strong attitude towards uh, corruption, bad, and also uh, the need to fight it. For mm -hmm. us, corruption at times of war is, 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 is the same as treason. And, and the president even initiated changes into legislation, which I know some people even debated whether it's too harsh, you know, both in Ukraine and outside of Ukraine. But, you know, at time when we are fighting for our own existence, those who engage in corruption, those who engage in, in, in these horrible acts now, are actually not just, you know, undermining the economic security of the country, but, but the national security in general. So, you know, I, I think, again, we have to acknowledge the huge progress that Ukraine has made and the commitment that we have, all of us, from president to all Ukrainians, to keep fighting until we, uh, again, I want to say eradicate it completely, but as you know, none countries eradicated corruption completely. It unfortunately exists where people exist, but to get it to a level where it's, uh, it, it's, it's not uh, something that anyone talks about when they talk about Ukraine, and to the level when even if it, it, it happens, the response is very swift and very strong, like it was recently with the chief justice in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Nobody is untouchable. He, he was engaged in alleged bribery, and he's in prison right now. And the largest oligarch in Ukraine, one of the largest, Mr. Kolomoisky, is in prison right now. And, and, and this result shows that we are not only talking about fight with corruption, but regardless of how difficult it is, we also do it. Sorry for a long no, answer. No, no, that was, that was a great answer. It was, um, Ambassador Markarova. Um, I should, yeah, I, I just want to say for the benefit of our radio audience that when you're listening to the City Club of Cleveland, that's Ambassador Oksana Makarova of Ukraine, um, and also with us is Senator Rob Portman. Go ahead, Senator. Well, one of the issues you've probably heard about um, in terms of the debate in Washington is, broadly speaking, about corruption uh, and specifically about the accountability of the U.S. taxpayer dollars that are being spent in Ukraine. Um, when we started the Ukraine caucus right after 2014, one of our main objectives was to focus on reforms. And these reforms of the military, uh, which is now, uh, as I say, a Western-style military with a civilian head, that wasn't true before, the judicial system, the economic system, the legislature. And you know, my own view, having followed that closely for the time between 2014 and, and, and when the, uh, the horrible attack occurred back in February of last year, is that there was significant progress being made, significant. and. Uh, specific reforms put in place through the legislature. Number two, my discussions with the government, I've been there 13 times since 2014 and met with uh, President Zelensky twice here as well. But in all those, and I met with him every time I was there and met with others, including uh, Oksana Markarova when she was finance minister of Ukraine, where she did a great job of bringing in private sector disciplines, including on corruption. Nobody wants to fight corruption more than them. <laughs> And nobody wants to see any lack of accountability on any single American dollar going into Ukraine more than them. 
uh, they know what the consequence would be. And here's the extraordinary thing. I do not believe there is any American aid going anywhere in the world that is more subject to audit and accountability than the money to Ukraine. And, and that's good. I'm for that. I hear some of my former colleagues saying, we're just giving them a blank check. Oh my gosh, there have been 47 different reviews of US taxpayer spending in Ukraine, 47. There have been nine GAO audits. There are three inspector generals, one at State Department, one at Department of Defense, one at USAID, that convene a group of 20 different agencies. And when you get into the detail of this, it is extraordinary. I mean, we're spending over $50 million. We spent over $50 million of US money to ensure that all this happens. So everything is audited very, very carefully. And the World Bank's involved because some of the funding on the humanitarian side or the state side goes through them and they have their own audit. Uh, also, um, they have the Deloitte folks, the, who's, you know, the, the auditors from the United States who are in Ukraine auditing in real time. Uh, there's never been a dollar, in my view, that we've ever spent as taxpayer dollars that's better reviewed and audited, and that's good. So when you hear people say that, you might just question them and just say, well, do you know what's actually going on in Ukraine? Have you been there? Have you talked to the U.S. government officials or the Ukrainian officials to hear what's actually happening? And one just, more, one more. I, okay. One, one, okay. One more. This, wanna, is very, very this is very, very, very that. important. On the military assistance, we are doing end-use monitoring of every piece of equipment going into Ukraine, which I'm for in ways we have never done before. I've been to the 101st Airborne and the 82nd Airborne on the border of Poland with Ukraine where all the equipment comes in, serial numbers are taken. Now out in the field, we have the ability to track these pieces. Here's an extraordinary fact, which might change tomorrow. Not a single one of our military you know, weapons, think of stingers or you know, rocket launchers or anti-aircraft or the tanks now or armored vehicles, not a single one of the American pieces of equipment that have gone in has been taken by the Russians or misused or subject to you know, some kind of corruption. Not a single piece. Now, it could happen tomorrow. It's extraordinary. But that end-use monitoring is something that is now a precedent that the U.S. military will use in the future, but it's never been done before. And I congratulate the 101st Airborne, the 82nd Airborne, and all the people in Ukraine who are Americans who are monitoring all this. And we should be very proud of that. And we should hold them up and encourage them to continue the fight. We're going to. We're going to go to questions from the audience in a second, but I did want to follow up with your, your point. Given everything that you've just described, the accountability measures that are in place, both financially and, and, and on the military side, um, can you explain why some of, your, uh, some of your former colleagues in the GOP um, and it seem so resistant to supporting the Ukrainians' efforts? Well, I should let them speak for themselves. Um, <laughs> I think I've addressed one, which is accountability. And, um, but it doesn't really explain it, because if they did the research, I think they would find out that there is extraordinary accountability. Um, and by, by the way, I'm for whatever. If they want to do more, that's, that's fine. But it's unprecedented. I think there's three reasons, probably. Um, one is we have a severe fiscal problem in this country. So to spend money on Ukraine, and they would say it's $100 billion, some of that is true. It's closer to maybe 74 when you net it out, because a lot of it's for stuff we need to do anyway in Europe. Um, but that's a lot of money. And at a time when we're running big deficits, there's a concern about 
any expenditure, so that's, that's, that's fair. As I said earlier, if we didn't do it, my own view is we'd be spending a lot more. And this would be bringing U.S. weapons, U.S. military onto the border, the new borders with, with, with Russia and protecting countries with which we have an obligation to do that. Second, a lot of this money is being spent here. So it's $74 billion, let's say, but where is it being spent? Let me give you a couple of numbers. $684 million economic impact in Ohio. Why? Because we make a lot of military equipment here. The Lima tank plant was talked about earlier. That's part of it, but it's also a lot of munitions and other weapons that are made here. In terms of investment in our military industrial complex here in Ohio, uh, there's also been a $65 million investment which was needed and we had to do it anyway. We found out once the Ukraine war started that we were not prepared. We did not have the munitions to be able to deal with whatever else might happen around the world, uh, including in, in Ukraine. Frankly, our military uh, industrial complex, the, the defense industry was moving too slowly. So there's been a big investment. So part of that money is being invested right here in Ohio and other states. Ohio is one of the states that's gotten the most investment um, and benefited the most from this. But this is about American jobs as well, which is forgotten sometimes. Second issue I think people raise, and understandably, is just an isolationist approach. And we, our country is, have a, has a rich history of this debate, right? It's been a spirited debate from, from day one. How much should America entangle itself with those overseas? Remember during World War II, we almost didn't join. What if we hadn't? Uh, the world would be a very different place. Uh, everybody in Europe would be speaking German. Um, and um, you know, it, it, so this is a, it's a legitimate debate. Should we be involved? My view on that one, again, not to respond to each of these, is that this is not American troops. The Ukrainians have never asked for an American troops on the ground in Ukraine. Ambassador Markarova, thank you so much. Um, so we're going to the Q&A now with all of you. I'm Dan Malthrop again, Chief Executive here at the City Club. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, those of you joining us via our live stream at cityclub.org or the radio broadcast on 89.7 IdeaStream Public Media, WKSU. If you'd like to text a question, you can text it to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794, and we'll work it into the program. Our first question is coming from one of our board members, Fareed Sadiq. Uh, uh, Madam Ambassador and Senator Portman, my question is related to what Dan asked earlier, that the change in the Republican Party, majority of the Republican uh, voters, seems to be opposed to Ukraine aid. Uh, your senator who replaced you is opposed to it. Trump is opposed to it. They seems to cater to Hungary, you know, Orban uh, dictators or Erdogan rather than democratic values, which when you go back to Eisenhower, Nixon, and um, Reagan, they were opposed to Soviet Union and Russian and uh, taking over the world. Why is it that how do you change the narrative so that the Republican Party starts supporting it rather than just a few people here and there? Well, thank you for the question, and it's a, it's a fair one. I would uh, say that I don't agree with your premise, which is that a majority of Republican voters are against it. If you look at the polling, it does show that there's a plurality of Republican voters who are for it. Um, in other words, it's not a majority against it. 
And I think they are influenced in part by what they hear from uh, re re Republican spokespeople. Um, and let's face it, it's, it's been a couple years. And we all have war fatigue. We had it w with every war we've been in. So it's not unusual that you begin to see some of that. But I would question that. I would also say that if there was a vote tomorrow in the United States Senate, there would be a majority of Republican senators who would support continuing the funding to Ukraine. Uh, I know that. Um, I can't speak to the House as well, but I know that at least the past votes that they've had, they've all had a majority of Republicans supporting it. And the current speaker says that he supports it. So I think sometimes the media plays this a little bit uh, um, more in a partisan way than it should be. I think they're almost trying to fan the flames of partisanship sometimes here because the, the facts are there hasn't been a vote that's gone down yet. And uh, Marcy can speak to, to the last vote, but it was a majority of Republicans who supported it, along with a big majority of Democrats. So I hope <laughs> that that continues to be the case. And uh, I do think that the issues I talked about earlier are issues that they're concerned about. The one point that is being made more now after the slaughter by Hamas in Israel, again, unprovoked, brutal, is that these things are connected. In other words, Russia, Iran uh, are supporting Hezbollah, are supporting Hamas, um, and you know, there is good intelligence now that's gone public, so I can talk about it, that the Russians have actually been helping Hezbollah with regard to things like anti-aircraft. So people talked, you remember, about the axis of evil at one point, and certainly that would include North Korea um, and Russia, and in Iran. And uh, so I hope Republicans will look at this a little broader. Uh, to the extent they are concerned about uh, the funding going there, um, you know, this is part of a much bigger battle for freedom. The other point that I think should be made, and I'm, I'm careful on this because I don't have the precise numbers, nor does anybody, but the Russian military has been substantially degraded by what the incredible Ukrainian armed forces have done with a much, as Ambassador said, a smaller number of people. The numbers are out there saying 50% degradation. And you can speak to this better than I can. Let's say 40%. 40%. You know, more than half of their armored vehicles, apparently the Russian vehicles, have, have been destroyed. Um, this is beneficial to anybody who believes in freedom and democracy, because otherwise this, this focus is going to be elsewhere, particularly in the Middle East, particularly in backing the Hezbollah and backing the Syrians and backing anything that you know, is um, in the interest of Iran and Russia and not in the interest of the United States. In Africa, think about what the Russians have done in Africa, pushing out France, pushing out the United States um, in a very, a very, a very aggressive way in so many countries. It's a dis distraction for them now to be able to do that because they have to focus on, on, on Ukraine. So I would hope that some Republicans would see this. You know, the, the, the world is becoming increasingly divided between the dictators and the free countries. And so this Russian unprovoked attack on Ukraine is part of a much bigger picture. And that the, the brave Ukrainians are sort of fighting the fight that all of us have to fight uh, to be able to push back against tyranny. Thank you, Senator. Ambassador. I wanted to add a little bit to that from my own personal experience. So first, I think we do have still strong bipartisan support uh, both in Senate and, and the House. Uh, we just have to explain more. We just have to provide more information. 
And it's definitely true about people. So I don't travel as much as I want to. Of course, I always like to travel to Midwest as soon as I can because I feel home here. But you know, it's when I talk to people, even people who from the beginning says they do not support it, but when they, you tell them about the fight, when you tell them about the war, that it was completely unprovoked, when you tell them, you know, depending on where, who you talk to, like uh, people don't know that we have, for example, the largest Baptist uh, community in Ukraine among other Eastern European countries. They don't know how many people are killed on the uncontrolled territories and religious freedom is prosecuted, whereas in Ukraine it's flourishing. Uh, when you tell them about the implications of that for, 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 for others, when you tell them about accountability, then the majority of people understand and support it. So I think it's the time when we have to go back and talk to people more and explain to them more. And again, that's the way how you ask the questions, because I've seen many different polls. When you ask people, do you want to spend more money on Ukraine when you have some uh, needs in your own country? I mean, in any country, people would say no. It's just you know the way you phrase the question, right? But if you ask people, do we have to help those who fight for freedom? Do we have to help those who defend themselves from Russia, Iran, you know, all these uh, autocratic countries, and that would, would help us to strengthen our own national security and help us not to fight in this war, because we have to be also honest with people. This is the choice. The Putin will not stop, or the Putins of the world will not stop, then people understand it. Uh, so it's just a matter of honest and constant communication. And I know how difficult it is. I was on, in the government in Ukraine as the Minister of Finance. Uh, but, but you have to constantly talk to people, talk to, and explain it to them. And when you explain it, you know, in a way that uh, is true and, and transparent, then, then the majority of people support it. So this is the time, I want to ask everyone in the audience and everyone who listens to us, this is the time to call and write to your senator and congressman. If you support, if you understand, if you know it, please say it. Because people who are against it, uh, I, I think there is not a lot of, uh, a lot of them, but they're very vocal. <laughs> But people who are doing ex extremely important job like you all do, people who are helping, people who are sending uh, military equipment or sending the medical equipment, people who are hosting Ukrainians here and helping Ukrainians, thank you very much. But you are 100% of your time busy with your work here, with taking care of your families and helping Ukraine. And sometimes you don't have time to say uh, on a daily basis, I do support it. Well, please say it. It's very important for all of us also to hear it. Indeed. We're going to try to get to is a couple more questions, I hope. Time is really running away with us. Go ahead, sir. Yes, it seems the discussion is, uh, figures, uh, centers around funding. Um, the second uh, American ambassador to Ukraine, William Miller, once told me that uh, Ukraine did everything the U.S. asked them to, including uh, surrendering the third largest nuclear arsenal in the world, uh, declining a contract with Iran, to supply turbines for the uh, Bushehr nuclear plant, uh, sending peacekeepers to Bosnia, <clears throat> uh, Iraq, and Afghanistan. Now, <clears throat> uh, to set up uh, the remainder of the question, uh, Ukraine has had some tremendous scientists. George Kisakovsky <clears throat> invented the detonator for the nuclear bomb and served as a science advisor to President Eisenhower. Ihor Sikorsky invented the helicopter Sergei Korolev led the Soviet Sputnik effort and the ICBM program. Yuri Kontradyuk figured out the mathematics of flying to the moon. Yubomir Ivankyu 
Ukrainian-American, was co-inventor of the hard drive. I could go on. <clears throat> um, so the question is, if America doesn't have uh, the funds to fund a friend in need, will it have the wherewithal to <clears throat> oppose the Russians if those friends are forced to serve the Kremlin again? That's, that's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one thing that we haven't talked about today on the positive side is um, the opportunity that is presented um, should we win this battle, which we have to. And Ukraine is an amazing country. The human resources you just talked about are extraordinary. And they're still there. This is not, you know, uh, this is not as if all those scientists left Ukraine. The, 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 the opportunity on the, in the digital age in Ukraine for economic development is tremendous. But also they have amazing natural resources. Everything, including critical minerals that we need for our own transition, but also gas reserves and also, of course, an amazing agricultural capability, uh, really per capita, probably the best in, in the world. So I was with Penny Pritzker yesterday, and Secretary Pritzker, former Secretary of Commerce, has been named the uh, special representative for Ukraine reconstruction. And I was at the State Department meeting with her. And it's really exciting what's being talked about in terms of if you can get this war uh, under control, you know, and be able to start developing some of these incredible resources in Ukraine, there's a, there's a strong interest and a lot of U.S. companies and others willing to invest. Just last month, we hosted Heather Conley of the German Marshall Fund, who spoke specifically at length about the, the idea of a Marshall Plan for Ukraine. Yeah. Um, Ambassador, quickly, so yeah. we can get to one last question. You are absolutely right. Ukraine can be and already is an answer to so many global problems, and we have to talk about that too. How many American companies are actually using software developers from Ukraine? Ukraine is in top five of exporters, number one in sunflower oil, uh, number three and five on wheat and barley and everything else. When we are talking about the lack of uh, sunflower oil for some baby, baby formula, we have to understand that it's because Russia invaded Ukraine and attacked Ukraine, not only Ukraine is affected, but the food security globally is affected, the energy security. We have exported electricity to European Union even in 2022, we can do much more with all of our nuclear capacity. So it's the right thing to fight for Ukraine from the values perspective. It's the right thing because America, as the leader of democracy, should, you know, must support uh, other democratic countries. But it's also a good thing for all of us because Ukraine with natural resources, with people, can be... Uh, you know, a solution to so many global problems and can be a very trusted partner for the United States. And I think this war, if anything, has happened, that we cannot rely upon non-democratic countries in our supply chains. That's not good business. Ukraine can be a very reliable partner for the U.S. Uh, to resolve, to, to be stronger, and to return to prosperity. And we need peaceful prosperity. One last very brief question. Welcome, uh, Ambassador Merkadova to Ohio and Senator Portman. It's always good to have you back in Cleveland. We thank you for your uh, leadership and support, and of course to all of our allies that appear that have tremendously supported the Ukrainian Americans and Ukrainians. My question is, what more can we do as Ohioans to support Ukraine? And the second question, um, 
Is, can you comment on the aid bill for Ukraine and Israel? Well, first of all, okay. Um, I, I, I think you've already said it um, mm -hmm. better better than I can. But yeah, way in. I mean, I think uh, March is head of the Ukrainian organizations throughout Ohio, and you know, in Cincinnati, where I'm from, we've had fundraisers, uh, had some uh, celebrity chefs come. Uh, Brandon Krotowski is here, who's actually gone to Ukraine and cooked for the Ukrainian refugees coming out. Um, so, I mean, plug in, plug in. There's, uh, Marta can certainly uh, direct you toward her fund, which is uh, very effective at providing uh, humanitarian aid and so on. But yeah, weigh in with your representatives, help with these organizations. Many of you are already doing so much, but some of you perhaps are learning some things today that would make you be, be more excited about that. In terms of the legislation, it's very complicated, as usual. But remember, there was a bill that passed in the House uh, that had aid for Israel paid for with uh, changes at the IRS, reductions of staff at the IRS. That didn't work in the Senate. And then the Senate has uh, since combined into one supplemental, which was the administration's original intent, the aid to Israel, the aid to uh, Ukraine, but then also something on the border. And so that's gotten a little bit muddied and a little more difficult uh, to figure out whether there's a bipartisan path forward for all those things. I think there is, and I would ask you know people in the room uh, you know, to, to, to weigh in if you agree with me that uh, it's time to do all of those. <laughs> of course our border's a problem, and if we can find a bipartisan way to make some changes, even incremental changes on the border, we should do it. And if we can get the aid to Israel that they need desperately right now, we, we should do it. And in addition, be sure that the aid to Ukraine is, is included at this critical time. This is not the time to pull back. If we have a pause and pull back, it will have a detrimental impact on the battlefield, obviously. And again, the rest of the world is watching. So, uh, and these are connected. Uh, so my, my hope is that, that it, will, it will pass, but that's the, that's the status right now. Ambassador. Dear, dear Marta, dear Andri, and everyone here and everyone who listens to us, first of all, thank you for everything you've done. And please do more. That's the answer to, to, to this is the answer to what, what to, more to do, everything that you have been doing and more. And with regard to the bill, it's critically important, critically important for us to continue <coughs> receiving the support in order to win. So we are praying for Congress to come back from, from Thanksgiving and get to this very important initiative and support us and Israel in uh, this very important national security initiative to provide it to us so that we can liberate our country faster, we can win, and Russia can be defeated as soon as is possible. Ambassador Oksana Makarova, Senator Rob Portman, thank you so much for being with us today. This has been a tremendous conversation. Thank you. Thank you for having us and for excellent moderation, Dan. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. I just got to close this out real quick. Um, our forum today is made possible thanks to generous support from individuals like all of you here in the room and also listening today. If you'd like to learn more about becoming a guardian of free speech, you can find out more at guardians, guardian of, guardiansoffreespeech.org. Our forum today is also the Lisa Botnick, Karen Faith Witt, and A.H. Weinstein Memorial Forum. We're honored to have Ellen Botnick with us here today. Thank you, Ellen, for your support. Thank you so much.
Also, a special welcome uh, to, uh, to our partners at the Crown Plaza Hotel. Thank you so much for joining us today. Appreciate you. And also welcome to students from Mayfield High School, Chardon High School, MC Squared STEM High School, along with Ashbrook Center, Global Cleveland, Mont Surfaces, whose materials are in our facility as well, Press Public Strategies, Friends of Mark Ross and Ukraine, and the Ukrainian Museum Archives, as well as, of course, the United Ukrainian Organizations of Ohio. Thank you all so much for being here today. That brings us to the end of our forum. Thank you both so much. Have a wonderful weekend, a wonderful Thanksgiving. Thank you for being a part of this today. Our forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.